We may read a passage like the one that Joel just read for us and, and stumble over what it says when it says things like, women submit to your husbands and it calls wives the weaker partner or the weaker vessel. Those are hard statements. They, they, they feel really foreign to us. We, we feel removed from that sort of a language when we come across it in the scriptures. One of the fascinating facts about early Christianity is that it was actually very attractive to both women and slaves. The early church was disproportionately female. In fact, sociologist Rodney Stark estimates that, that up to two-thirds of the Christian community in the second century was made up of women. And this is really striking when you consider the fact that only one-third of the population in the Greco-Roman Empire was women. Um, oftentimes, uh, fathers in Greco-Roman culture would abandon their children at birth, especially if it was female. And this led to the death of, of many female babies. It's a tragedy. The church was actually known for rescuing these children and caring for them. But this led to an imbalance in, in gender. There were two-thirds male, one-third female, but there were two-thirds female in the church, one-third male. Professor Michael Kruger points out that this means that, that women intentionally left the religious systems of the Greco-Roman world with which they were familiar and consciously decided to join the Christian movement. He goes on, he says, Christians were widely despised, viewed with suspicion and scorn, and regarded as a threat to a stable society, and yet women in great numbers decided to join the early Christian movement anyway. Why do you think that was? In the first century, women were commonly treated as second-class citizens. It's known and recorded that many Jewish men prayed every morning, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Aristotle, who predates the first century a little bit, but who nonetheless represents the worldview of the first century, said this, he said, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. One rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Aristotle went on to say women, he called women tame animals to be ruled. This was the cultural air of the first century. It was a hard time to be a woman. And it was in this context that women were actually flocking to Christianity. Fundamentally, this is because Jesus' treatment of women was revolutionary. He dignified them as human beings loved by God. He didn't treat them as second-class citizens. Jesus repeatedly in the New Testament addresses women in public, which was a social taboo. And even more than that, we, we capture glimpses of Jesus as he teaches with women sitting at his feet learning from him. He, he allowed them to come and, and to be his disciples. Jesus was radical in the way that he treated and welcomed and loved women. Kruger notes that, that women pop up all over the place in our earliest Christian sources. When you read the scriptures, what you find is that women hosted churches in their homes. 
that women cared for the poor and those in prison, that, that they were traveling missionaries and evangelists, that they were wealthy patrons who supported the church financially, and so much more. In fact, it was so much the case that women were integral to early Christianity that Christianity was actually despised by some for that very reason. They said that, that Christians were only able to persuade the dregs of the populace and credulous women. They ridiculed Christianity for being a religion for, for women. And so, I, I make all that point to say this. The common modern criticism of Christianity as a patriarchal, misogynistic religion is inconsistent with history. The, the fact is that the non-Christian world of the first century was way more hostile to women than the Christian one. The Christian faith gave women dignity. I'll be the first to admit Christians haven't always lived into that. But that's reality. And I share this not as an attempt to, to sidestep Peter's words here. We're going to deal with them. I, but I share them to say that whatever Peter is doing with this language of submission and weaker vessel, it wasn't a scandal to the women in his day. In fact, just the opposite, they were, they were attracted to the Christian message, including its code of ethical conduct, the way that it commanded husbands and wives to live with one another. I want to, and so that, that kind of gives us some historical context, and now I want to bring us back into uh, the context of what Peter is doing in the letter of 1 Peter. Let's remember that Peter is aiming to accomplish something specific in this section. Go, really going back to chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul and to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. He's, he's challenging believers to live holy, honorable lives so that even those in positions of authority over them, when, when they slander them or scorn them for their faith in Jesus, they'll nonetheless take note of their good deeds to the degree that it eventually leads them to give glory to God. And I think that's Peter's way of saying to become a follower of Jesus, that the conduct of these Christians' lives will eventually lead some who mock them and scorn them and slander them to believe in the Jesus that they first mocked. And so he's calling Christians to be winsome witnesses of Jesus, and he's specifically speaking to those who find themselves in positions of vulnerability and weakness underneath those who hold power over them. And so essentially what Peter is saying is, let your life demonstrate the goodness of Jesus by conducting yourself in a way that honors Christ and makes Christianity compelling. And the primary way he tells them to do this is through honoring those in authority over them. And so three weeks ago, we dealt with the topic of, of, of civil authority. And what, what Peter says to Christians is to submit to every human authority, to give honor to the emperor. And then two weeks ago, we dealt with Peter's command to servants. And he tells them to submit to their masters. And then last week, we got a break. 
And then this week, we get to deal with the third of these scenarios, which is wives and husbands. And specifically, what Peter seems to be dealing with are wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. Right? So imagine this scenario with me. A woman in the first century begins to hear of some of the Christian teachings. They begin to hear about Christ. And they're drawn to that message and the Holy Spirit opens their hearts to believe in Jesus as Messiah. And now all of a sudden they've converted either out of Judaism or, or, or out of paganism and now they've believed in Jesus as Messiah but they're still married to a husband who doesn't believe. That's what Peter is dealing with here. You can imagine the dynamic this would create. They were already called to live in submission, but now the question is, how do we do this now? Peter is dealing with that specific issue. And then in verse seven, he's also gonna eventually get to husbands just to sort of round out this section. And so this morning we're dealing with the topic of marriage. And I recognize as we come to this topic that there are many of you in the room not married. And Peter doesn't say anything specifically in this section to the unmarried. So I just want to give a brief word to you to say that this doesn't mean that marriage is more important than singleness. Remember, Peter is dealing with relationships where there's a power dynamic at play, right? That's why he turns now to wives. In other places, the Bible does give specific instructions to the unmarried. And so I just want to be clear that, that singleness is not a less important topic than marriage. It's not a less, lesser calling than marriage. It's not a lesser station in life than marriage. We're not a church that values one over the other. Can I just be really clear about that? If you're single in the room this morning, I want you to know that you are a valuable asset to our church. And so please don't feel unseen or, or overlooked because we're dealing with this topic this morning. It just so happens this is where First Peter brings us and so we've got to deal with this section. And even still, as we focus specifically on wives and then husbands, there's plenty for all of us to glean. Maybe you're a, a teenager, teenage boy, so we don't have any girls sitting up here. You're like, what does this have to do with me? Listen close, fellas, all right? We got plenty to teach you. Here's the big idea that I think Peter is, is conveying to us this morning. We are called to commend the gospel with our lives. That's the big E on the I chart for us all. That's for everyone. We're all called to commend the gospel through our lives. And as Peter zooms in specifically on wives and husbands, what he's doing is he's calling wives to commend the gospel to their husbands, especially unbelieving husbands. And he's calling husbands to commend the gospel to their wives and that as they do this, it'll also commend the gospel to other people as they watch Christians live peculiar and different than everyone else. Right? That's what Peter is trying to get across. How followers of Jesus live toward their spouses should be noticeably different from the world, and it ought to commend the goodness of Jesus to the world. Right? And so let's first notice how, how Peter commends wives to do that, and then we'll look at how Peter commends husbands to do that. Verse 1, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, 
so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. The first thing that Peter says to wives about commending the gospel to their unbelieving husbands is that they should submit to their husbands. Now realize this is a trigger word. This is a controversial idea. We have to deal with it. And let's all admit that submission is a hard idea. It goes against every inkling in our flesh. We want to elevate ourselves. We don't want to submit ourselves. Right? And I think we need to be quick to admit that this is a word and that this is a concept that has been abused repeatedly in the church. This language has been perverted to control women and to demean women. And so I want to just speak really clearly that the Bible renounces the mistreatment and abuse of women. And that submission is never a call to endure abuse. And so listen to me. There, statistically speaking, the reality is that there is a woman in this room who is suffering from abuse this morning. And if you are suffering from abuse, I want you to listen closely. God does not call you to continue to live under the abuse of your husband or your boyfriend. He is not acting as your husband or your boyfriend. He's acting as a criminal. And you need to call for help. Talk to a pastor. Call the police. Get the help you need. That is not what we are talking about this morning. I hope that's really clear. Submission is not a call to endure abuse. And yet we can't get around the idea of submission altogether. This is, this is a biblical idea, and it's actually what I hope by the end of this morning you see is that it's actually a beautiful idea. It's God's idea. The book of Hebrews calls all believers to submit themselves to their spiritual leaders who give watch over their souls and who are accountable to God for how they shepherd Earlier in the letter that Peter wrote that we're looking at, he calls Christians to submit to civil authorities. We're called to live under our governing authorities. And here and in other places, very specifically, wives are called to submit to their husbands. And when we understand this idea correctly, my hope is that we're able to see it as beautiful and compelling. Because the idea of submission is not one of inequality, but one of respect and honor. Submission does not mean forfeiting your ideas or opinions. It doesn't mean leaving your personality at the door. Submission is not blind obedience. A wife is not, is not a slave or an employee of her husband. As, as, as Russell Moore says it, submission is not, woman, go get my chips. That is not submission. That's gross. Submission is not letting a husband do whatever he wants. And I want you to pay attention to something else Peter doesn't say. Peter doesn't say wives or women be subject to men, does he? The Bible does not teach that women are supposed to submit to men. That's perversion. 
It teaches that wives are to submit to their own husbands. There's only one man you're called to submit to, wives. Submission is limited to only one person. And notice that it's a willing submission. Nowhere does the Bible instruct husbands to force their wives to submit. You just won't find that in the Bible. You won't find instructions to husbands on how to get their wives to submit. You won't find instruction to demand submission. It's always a a willful submission by the wives to willfully come underneath their husbands. It's a voluntary act to honor your own husband, and here's the definition, by helping him fulfill his calling to lead the home. Submission is, is a call to honor your husband by helping him fulfill his calling to lead the home. Now, why does Peter specifically invite women into this calling? There there are really two answers to this question. There's a a theological answer, and then there's an apologetic answer. The Apostle Paul deals primarily with the theological answer. So I'm going to try to do it in about three sentences. Here's the theological answer. He says that the union, the covenant union between a husband and a wife is intended by God, especially Christian husbands and wives, it's intended by God to portray the union between Christ and the church. That marriage is supposed to be a dramatic reenactment of the gospel. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that in the same way that the church submits itself gladly to Jesus, that wives should submit themselves to their own husbands. And so submission is a picture of the church's willing respect and reverence for Jesus. That's the intention in the Christian marriage, that wives get to reenact and portray the beautiful reality of the church saying, man, I willingly and gladly come under the authority and the leadership of Jesus. And in the same way, Paul says that that, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church by laying his life down for her. Wives play the role of the church. Husbands play the role of Christ in this drama. And what did Jesus do for the church? He laid down his life for her. And so husbands are called to sacrificially love and lead their wives as wives willingly help and follow their husbands. And this, Paul says, is how the Christian marriage is supposed to work. Husbands have a role to play. Wives have a role to play. And when you live in this pattern, it's beautiful. You know, what's even more interesting is that the Scriptures really don't give specifics in exactly how this plays itself out. And so it might look different in every marriage. There aren't fixed ways of leading and supporting and helping. It's not as if husbands get to make every decision and lead in every facet of life. It's all shared between the two. But generally speaking, husbands are called to the task of leading, making sure that the family is set up to flourish, and wives are called to come alongside of their husbands as partners and helpers in that task. So that's the theological answer. Now here's the problem in 1 Peter. In this scenario, the husband is not a believer. So Christ isn't his model. Sacrificial love is, the paradigm, is not the paradigm. 
And so the question is, what then? What should these wives do? And I think there are two temptations. I think one temptation for these, for these women who have converted to Jesus is, is to feel the freedom not to submit at all. That but, but by breaking submission with respect to religion, by coming under Jesus and his teaching and his headship, that they should break submission in every other way, that they're free in Christ to no longer follow their husband at all. I think this is more akin to our modern temptation when it comes to this topic. I, 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 some of us are probably really uncomfortable by this point. It's like, man, Andy's been waxing on this point for a long time. Can we just move on? This is, this is hard. We live in a culture that values self-expression and, and individual freedom above everything. And so any idea of, of putting yourself underneath the authority of another is, is viewed as something that stands in the way of self-actualization. What are you even talking about? So I think that's one temptation. You just go, man, I'm just going to shirk the idea of submission altogether. I think the other temptation would have been to zealously seek to win their husband to Christ by preaching at him. To win him to Christ through pressuring him to convert. And Peter doesn't tell them to do either of those things. What Peter says to do is actually really radical. First, he commends their faith in Jesus. In this respect, they shouldn't submit to their husbands, right? We saw this with, with civil authority, and we're going to see it again here, that there's a limit to submission to another human when that breaches submission to Christ. And so Peter commends their faith in Jesus. They should remain faithful to Christ. But then he says that in every other way, they should continue to submit to their husbands, that they should remain committed to the marriage relationship. They should honor their husbands. They should cherish him. They should show him unwavering commitment. Loyalty belongs to Jesus, but Jesus models for these wives a way of selfless love, and they're to follow his example in that. And so what Peter's saying is submit in every way possible without violating your allegiance to Jesus. And the reason why they should do that is because Peter says that as they do this, their husbands will actually take notice. And they might be won over by their reverent conduct without them having to even say anything. Now, to be clear, Peter is not saying that wives should never talk to their husbands about Jesus. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. But I think what he is saying is that, that wives should, should not badger their husbands about their need for conversion. They should instead love them and serve them the way Christ has loved and served. And that ultimately, as they live in this pattern of selfless love, of, of, of humility, of submission, that ultimately their spouse will be won over by observing the change that Jesus makes and how they live in voluntary submission. Let me make it simple. Willing, glad submission. First to Jesus and then to a husband is a supernatural act. So if you're in the room this morning, you're like, man, this dude up on stage is crazy. He has lost his mind. Here's what I would say to you. You're getting close to the gospel. 
because the Christian life cannot be lived in your own strength. You can't do it. It takes a supernatural work of the Spirit to change your heart to go, man, I love Jesus and I trust Jesus even when he says things that sound crazy to me. And I'll follow because I believe he loves me because he laid down his life for me and I believe he's for me. And so I can trust his wisdom when it confounds the world's wisdom, when it makes no sense whatsoever. I'm walking with Jesus. That takes a supernatural act of the heart. That can't happen in the flesh. And so if that's how you feel this morning, good. Keep pressing in. Lean into that. But friends, listen to me. I'm going to come back to this at the end. I think we struggle in the church to trust the wisdom of God over our own wisdom. To trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to lean not in our own understanding or the world's understanding, but to in all of our ways acknowledge Him. That means, that means in all of our ways we're going, I'm acknowledging God what your word says here, even when it feels weird and I don't get it. And I'm going to lean into that and not follow my own way. And to believe that God will work through that. Because here's the principle for all of us. Whether you're married or not, whether you're a wife or a husband or, or single or a teenager, here's the principle. The power of sacrificial love is how the world is changed. What Peter is setting forth here is, is really the essence of the gospel. Wives, as you live in Christ's pattern of sacrificial love and self-denial, God works through you to commend Jesus to your spouse. Sacrificial love is how the world is changed. Do you want to make the gospel compelling? Learn what it is to be fueled by the Spirit to live in voluntary servant-heartedness. Unforced, willing submission in the power of the Spirit is countercultural and supernatural, and it makes Jesus really attractive. That's what Peter's saying. And then he goes on. And he says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So Peter first calls these wives to submission, but then he calls them, and I promise I'm gonna explain this, he calls them to a life of serenity. The first century was not unlike our own day, in that outward appearances were heavily valued. And so things like braided hair and gold jewelry were, were seen as status symbols. It was easy to get caught up in maintaining one's appearance. There also might be the thought by these wives who want their husbands to believe in Jesus that if they just dress nice enough and were pretty enough, that that might be the thing that would win their husbands over. And Peter says, don't, don't put your eggs in that basket. Don't play that game. He calls them to a different pursuit. Now, to be clear, again, what Peter is not saying is that it's wrong to wear jewelry or to braid your hair. I don't even think Peter's against external beauty. I think what Peter is pressing in on is, what is the aim of your life? 
Where are you spending your time and your energy? Are you spending more time cultivating external beauty than you are cultivating internal beauty? I think it's a question for all of us, right? How much time and attention are you devoting to cultivating internal beauty? What Peter describes as the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. I think the picture here that that Peter's trying to paint with these words is one of serenity and tranquility. I want you to imagine a quiet stream. Peter is saying, wives, do you want to win your husbands to Christ? Then be like a quiet stream. Be like that tree in Psalm 1 that is rooted in a stream of living water, anchored, secure, and flourishing. Leaf doesn't wither, bears fruit in season. A gentle and quiet spirit describes a soul free from anxiety and turmoil because their trust is in the Lord. And Peter is saying, if you want to make Jesus compelling, cultivate that kind of a spirit. See, the world is full of frantic pursuits of self-advancement and self-promotion. It's filled with people desperate for attention and acknowledgement. People dying for accolades and for approval. And what Peter's saying is, man, but the godly heart of a woman, is, it's set on Christ. She knows who she is, and she has a settled rest in her spirit because of that. How is an unbelieving husband going to be won over? As they see the peace of Christ ruling in their wife's heart. As they see their wives devote themselves to the pursuit of godliness. And let's zoom out a second. More broadly, what will make Jesus compelling to our friends, to our neighbors? It's not Christians getting caught up in the rat race of life getting lost in the fleeting pursuits of of the world. But it's Christians whose hearts are set on God, who are steadfast and at peace. It is Christians who are liberated by Jesus to submit and serve. Sacrificial love is how the world is going to be changed. All right. I don't have much time. In verse 7... Peter shifts to address husbands. He's kind of rounding out his discussion on the marriage relationship and and really ending this section of his letter as he's he's going to shift gears next week. Some of you guys are like, finally. Now, it's, it's obvious here, right, that wives get six verses and husbands get one. What's the deal with that? Someone said it's because husbands can't do two things at at once, much less six verses. That's probably true. But just as a reminder, Peter has been dealing specifically with with this idea. I just lost my notes. Give me just a second. Peter has been dealing specifically with this idea of, of those who are in a power dynamic, who are underneath the authority of another. And so he dealt primarily with the wives because they found themselves in that place. But it's like he can't help himself. He's got to at least say something to husbands. And so he turns his address to husbands. Let's read it. 
Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I'm going to make a bold statement. Some of you, don't be scared. Perhaps what made Christianity particularly attractive to women in the first century was not its instructions to wives, but its instructions to husbands. In the first century, husbands held significant power over their wives. And unsurprisingly, this power was commonly exploited. Faithfulness was not expected of a husband. It was expected of a wife. Men could really divorce their wives for pretty much any reason. Women were commonly viewed and treated as inferior. One commentator said that wives were often viewed as not much different than a household servant. Men would, men would regularly have concubines to satisfy them sexually, and they would have a wife to essentially keep the house and raise the kids. And so what Peter is saying here was radically countercultural in the first century, and it's still sadly countercultural today. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, more literally, according to knowledge. Learn your wife. Study her. Study her so as to enjoy her and to make her happy. Get to know her. Know, know her likes, know her dislikes. Acquaint yourself with all of her favorites. Come to understand her. Husbands, pursue her. One of the things that was spoken over me in my engagement was, was Andy, engaged is a good word. You should keep it after you get married. Remain engaged. Don't take your wife for granted. Devote yourself to her as a lifelong quest. That's what Peter is saying here. Live with your wife in an understanding way, according to knowledge. And then he says, as with a weaker partner. What in the world does that mean? What Peter is saying here is that culturally and socially, women found themselves in a more vulnerable position. They were the ones who held less power in society. They were the ones called to submit in the marriage relationship. And so what Peter is saying here is live sympathetically in light of that and gently with them as those in the more fragile position. Care for them. Treat them with tenderness. Love them the way you would an, a, a valuable artifact or a, or a precious treasure. I want you to imagine someone gifting you a Fabergé egg. Right, it's worth an enormous value, right? Millions. Imagine somebody handing you that, that, that valuable, beautiful piece of art and you going, thank you, and tossing it in the back seat. No. You would handle it with care. You would protect it and cherish it. And so don't miss what Peter's saying, husbands. Your wife is worth more than a Fabergé egg. Do your actions demonstrate this reality? Treat her with care. Peter says, show her honor as a co-heir of the grace of life. There it is. Don't miss what Peter just said. 
He says that wives are co-heirs with husbands of grace. What, what Peter is communicating here is fundamental equality. In a world of, of inequality in the first century, the gospel says that husbands and wives are equal. Paul says in Galatians 3 that through the gospel there is no longer male, female, but that you are one in Christ. And so there's still some distinction in terms of, that, of how that plays out in the marriage relationship, but there is fundamental equality between husbands and wives, between male and female. This is why women ran to Christianity in the first century. Christians were the only ones saying this. And church, if I can challenge us just a little bit as we close, people should still be running to the church for the same reason. Christian husbands, the way you treat your wife should be so fundamentally gracious and kind that it ought to make non-Christian women take an interest in Jesus by the way that you treat her. It ought to be so strikingly different from the way your unbelieving friends treat their wives and talk about their wives that it causes them to self-reflect. And there should be zero question to a watching world about the goodness of Christianity, especially for women. And sadly, this isn't the case many times. And it's because, by and large, husbands have not fulfilled 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, it starts with us. Notice what Peter says. So that your prayers will not be hindered. The way that you treat your wife cannot be separated from your relationship with God. Peter says the two, the two are intertwined. It is a lie to think, I love God and not love your wife. Peter says that's a lie. Don't fool yourself. God will not be mocked. And perhaps what is keeping our city from a greater movement of God is not a lack of dynamic communicators or strategic vision, but a lack of Christ-like love from husbands toward their wives. I said it a few weeks ago, and I'm going to say it again. When it comes to the kingdom advancing, what we might be tempted to think is that what we need is a crusade, and yet what God calls us to is submission and respect and honor. And the question for us is, do we trust in the wisdom of God, or are we going to trust in our own wisdom? Peter is inviting us into living as winsome witnesses. And the power of sacrificial love is how the world is changed.